It's all part of the plan. DC Talk here and Get Into Geek. My name is Mitch. Talking all things big screen, DC, and my journey through the small screen of the later stages. The end game, if you will, of the Arrowverse. More of that to come after this week's news, which, to be fair, over the last seven days, I thought the only thing really worth bringing up, it was such a small thing. It was James Gunn coming out, hoping to confirm, but in the end kind of still confusing a fair few people about what is coming back what will remain canon of what we've experienced so far in the DC world whether it be movies or TV it's only movies let's be fair and what will continue what will be there when the official DCU kicks off and I was going to record this podcast yesterday had to hold off for an extra 24 hours and I'm really glad I did because there have been some spicy stuff happening over the last 12 hours thanks to a report from Variety about the upcoming Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom. We'll get to that in a second, just cover off on Gunn's comments about what will be canon and more particularly who will be canon in the DCU. I feel like he's already had to come out and state that Creature Commandos, which comes out in 2024, the animated show, will be the first official piece that is produced, published, done, released by DC Studios. But he did come out again and say on his Threads account, because he's kind of done with Twitter slash X, whatever you want to call it. He's over on Threads trying to use that a little bit more and said that nothing is canon until Creature Commandos next year. And basically that it is serving as an appetizer to the DCU because Superman Legacy in 2025, we're getting that midway through 2025, and that will be a, quote, deeper dive into the DCU. And it's already set to feature a bunch of other characters that seemingly won't play that big of a role, but he is casting these characters long ahead of when they're actually going to have something a little bit more meatier, but to really kick us into gear into the DCU. But it was about the particular actors and actresses that will be coming back that I think really got everybody's attention. He came out, obviously Blue Beetle, still in cinemas at the moment, doing so-so business, but received generally positive reviews. I know on the last episode of DC Talk, I was hoping that I would have seen it before this recording. I believe that I'm seeing it in the next couple of days. Finally, here I was whinging that we didn't get it until four weeks after its American release, and it's been another three to four weeks since then again, and I have not made it out to the cinemas. That aside, Gunn, in a separate thread, come out confirming Jolo Maraduena, who plays Blue Beetle, will continue playing that character in the DCU. Viola Davis will be back as Amanda Waller, which we already knew anyway, I think, when they announced that Waller was getting her own series. Viola Davis would be coming back. Maybe that was all hopes and dreams. Now it's confirmed. And that John Cena will be Peacemaker. Also, not much of a surprise considering Gunn wrote and directed pretty much every episode of the Peacemaker series. And until the DCU was announced as a thing and that James Gunn would be running things, it was announced that he would be writing every single episode, probably directing a bunch as well. So he's very close to the Peacemaker character, which he introduced the adaptation of in his Suicide Squad film, John Cena as well, which regardless of whether or not you like the show or like the movie, I think everyone kind of liked that character character enough and like John Cena's interpretation of that character in Gunn's interpretation of it in that particular world as well. So no real surprise about those last two considering they were part of Gunn's films and his upcoming TV shows and movies. Jolo Maraduena, pretty much good news for that as well. Again, I haven't seen the film, but one thing I'm definitely hearing about Blue Beetle, whether or not people have been pleased with it, slightly disappointed, underwhelmed, overwhelmed, whatever the go may be, everyone is very happy about Jolo Maraduena 
and his on-screen presence that the quote this guy is a movie star so for him to be sort of released as Blue Beetle in this film midway between the DCEU and the new DCU he was obviously at great risk of that movie and himself in it being completely left behind and underappreciated but Gunn definitely confirming if not doubling down on comments that he'd made in the past that Jolo will be returning Blue Beetle, the film itself, the events in it may not actually be canon to the DCU, but Jolo Maradwena as Blue Beetle will be coming back to play that character, which I guess is the same as Viola Davis and John Cena. It strikes me as a little bit strange that James Gunn would just so easily pass aside, not so much Suicide Squad, because that came with so many other characters that had existing backstories in previous DCEU films, but Peacemaker itself, yes, while he was tied to the Suicide Squad, which ties him to the rest of the DCEU, they could kind of push all that aside and just have Peacemaker as its own thing, almost a a Blue Beetle in itself. Like, hey, this character and this actor playing him is the same actor as in The Suicide Squad, and these events could have taken place, but it also could have been separate ones. Either way, those performers are coming back to play those characters in the upcoming DCU, which I think is somewhat getting some unfair confusion. I understand that a lot of that is coming from the haters of Gunn and what he's come in and he's destroyed. He wants to take over the DC universe and he also wants to destroy everything that came before it. It's Gunn v. Snyder. He hates Snyder. He hates everything and everyone that came out. All those Facebook posts about him not liking 1989's Batman. I think that that's been confirmed that that was his real account those are his real comments but you know that's also his opinion who cares whether he likes a previous interpretation or not it's a lot of people's definitive batman but also so was christopher nolan's i'm sure he has his things to say about that i'm not even coming out here praising the ground that james gunn walks on it's just so funny that these people feel free to have opinions about a guy and yet say that he is not allowed to have his own opinion on things. My issue is that we have seen this before. I'm sure there are many examples of it. I mean, big, giant, continuing franchises. I mean, once we do go on and look at the biggest franchises of all time, we are talking about a minimal number. My first thought was James Bond. I'm a massive Bond fan. One gripe that is kind of separate to this, but I almost feel the need to say it, is that people look at the James Bond films and that every actor is a new agent taking on the 007 codename and that it's not James Bond the entire time or that James Bond itself is a codename. But more importantly, that George Lazenby, when he first took over Sean Connery, it was because he was a different person. And then when Roger Moore took over, a different one, Timothy Dalton, Pierce Brosnan, all over again. Obviously, Daniel Craig is a different James Bond to those others because that was a brand new continuity but you only have to look at the fact that George Lazenby in his one film his James Bond got married Sean Connery came back in the very next film and James Bond took revenge on the death of his wife from the previous film Roger Moore five movies later finally killed the guy that gave the order to kill his wife Timothy Dalton in his second film was referred to having been married but a long time ago in a really sad sort of setting and Pierce Brosnan also his James Bond avoided the question of whether or not he had ever been married they are the one and the same those films that character just existed when the 
movie was made. Yes, Pierce Brosnan in 1999 was also the same James Bond as Sean Connery in 1963. The movies, the events just all kind of exist within a few years of the movie that you are watching. I didn't think that was very confusing. I didn't think that was misunderstood. Apparently, that is a confusion that is out there. Where it draws a comparison for me to the DCU is Judy Dench as M, right? James Bond's boss. Now, we did have two, maybe three different male M's between Sean Connery and the end of Timothy Dalton's run. Come Pierce Brosnan in 95, Judy Dench takes over and it was this big thing. The mid-90s, it was poking fun at his chauvinistic ways, the fact that he now had a female superior. How was this guy that was referred to by her as a dinosaur going to work under a woman superior, God forbid? Come Casino Royale, why would you replace Judy Dench? She was fantastic as M. So when they completely reboot the entire film franchise, take James Bond back to before he was a double O agent and earning those stripes in his first mission in Casino Royale, M, the female, Judy Dench was the boss, but that previous continuity didn't exist. It just had the same actress playing the same character, albeit a slightly different interpretation in the film. I don't think that caused any major concerns. I think people understood at the time that this wasn't a prequel to the Sean Connery films. It wasn't a prequel to the Pierce Brosnan films. It was just a new continuity, and Judy Dench happened to be playing roughly the same character as what she had four years earlier in the last Pierce Brosnan film. That's how I'm taking it, is that Jolo Maradwena will be Blue Beetle. The actors and actresses playing his family and friends from the film might also be returning, but that doesn't mean that their journey, their storylines from Blue Beetle Beetle will exist in the DCU. Same as Viola Davis, same as John Cena's Peacemaker. And it also gives them a time to slightly rebrand, slightly restructure maybe their interpretation, their adaptation of these characters. If James Gunn wants to, I can't see him changing the style of Peacemaker and what he's given to us through the Suicide Squad film and the what eight episode first season of Peacemaker. He clearly likes what he was doing with that character. I can't see that changing. But if it doesn't suit the overall universe that he's trying trying to establish in the new DCU, it does give him a chance to slightly change that up and, you know, give someone like Viola Davis, one of the greatest actresses in the world, and John Cena, the chance to slightly change things up a bit. Now, those three, they're confirmed. It's the names that he left off that also made for an interesting realisation. We know Henry Cavill's not coming back. That has been... uh Well covered. Ben Affleck seemingly done with Batman after The Flash. Ray Fisher, I mean, that thing seemed long and done a while ago. Ezra Miller coming out with The Flash and, well, James Gunn, Peter Safran, whoever, Andy Muschietti even saying if The Flash was going to get a sequel... Ezra Miller would be playing The Flash. James Gunn was definitely not coming out ahead of that movie releasing, saying this is one and done with Ezra Miller. We are not bringing them back to play this character in the future. People might have just said, hey, I'm not going to worry about it. So Gunn's not going to say anything ahead of time. Ezra Miller certainly seems done. There was that weird week where Gal Gadot came out and said, hey, I'm coming back. We've had talks about Wonder Woman 3 and everything looks positive and I can't wait to uh, bring the next chapter of this character to life. Now, I mean, that could have just been a... uh a weird, interesting way of her saying that she was going to be involved in a third Wonder Woman film. Obviously, the internet took over and interpreted that as her confirming she will play Diana Prince again and it will be in a third film in her own franchise. Gunn had to come out and whoever else come out and say, no, that's not happening. Those conversations never took place. We've neither confirmed that at any stage in the lead up to this. We don't know what Gal's talking about. Certainly throwing more fuel onto the fire that was people hating 
Machine Gun and him trying to destroy what had come before. Jason Momoa, though, seemed to be someone that had been confirmed subtly about at least staying in the DC film universe. He himself, months ago, we covered it here on the show, released a video on his Instagram saying he'd just come out of a meeting with Peter Safran, James Gunn, and that he was very happy with what they said. And he couldn't contain his excitement. He was squealing about it. He was so excited about what he was going to do. That was soon met with the idea that he's going to come back and play Aquaman again at safe. That character is returning it might be the same as what's going on with blue beetle aquaman and jason momoa will be one of the same but the previous films and their continuity won't be but also that he would be playing lobo which was a fan favorite pick of his for the last couple of years as well either before aquaman or on top of it james gunn came out and said no actor is going to be playing two characters in the universe that i'm helping to develop Now, that killed off that talk pretty quick, but this was before we even saw a second worth of footage of Aquaman, and also the fact that is very much still tied to the old DCEU, and if Gunn keeps going on with what he has been doing, that is going to be the end of that particular character's run. So, what's Momoa so happy about? That remains to be seen in any kind of confirmed way, but part of Variety's report on the upcoming Aquaman, which is set to release in December, was that, quote-unquote, none of the star cast from Zack Snyder's 2016 Batman v Superman or Justice League are set to return for the new DCU, that they will not be reprising their roles going forward. However, that when it comes to Momoa, Variety is reporting that he may return to the DCU as Lobo instead of Aquaman and that he's been in discussion with Warner Brothers Discovery to play that character in an upcoming project, one that could be as early as Superman Legacy. And he could be one of these many, many side characters, aside from Superman and Lois, to appear in the film and sort of lay down some foundations for the future. Again, that could all be speculation. They just know that he's going to be returning and certainly the team is starting to show that it's probably Lobo. We'll see, but there were also those quotes from the start of the year where Peter Safran, the DC Studios co-head, saying that he expected Momoa would have a place in their upcoming DCU for, quote, many years to come. The other fun about Variety, and we'll get to Amber Heard's involvement in just a second, but where there were reports about her having made complaints about Momoa and his uh, onset etiquette, that there are notes from Heard's therapist that were brought up in that awful Johnny Depp Amber Heard defamation trial going on over the last two years that Momoa, she claimed, had arrived to set drunk. Now, hey, we're all big fans of Momoa. I'm not even criticizing the guy. The report went on further, though, and said, according to Amber Heard, that Momoa showed up dressed like Johnny Depp, that he was drunk, and that he wanted her fired from the sequel. A spokesperson from DC, though, came out strongly denying those claims and said that he's always been in a professional manner. He's one of the hardest workers. He does, of course, like to have a beer, but he doesn't come to work drunk. And the whole dressing like Johnny Depp, that's just kind of Jason Momoa's style as well. They even labeled it the bohemian style, which is kind of how, I guess, Jason Momoa... It's kind of how you would expect Jason Momoa to look. If you had to draw him from memory, that's what you'd draw him as. Some of the other notes that Variety sourced seem to confirm all of the uh, the rumours online over the last couple of years that DC wanted Amber Heard fired from the film. And I mean, a lot of that came to light over the course of the defamation trial and a lot of DC fans wanting her fired for for whatever reason. I mean, that whole trial was a mess. There was no winner. There was no loser. No one was entirely right. No one was entirely wrong. It was just one big fat mess that was kind of addictive 
not necessarily watch, but certainly follow along just for the train wreckedness of the whole thing. It was it was juicy. But the word is that DC didn't want her to stick around. They claimed a lack of chemistry between her and Momoa, but said that it was from before the defamation trial. And that Warner Brothers went as far as to send notification of their decision to Heard's legal team. Apparently, though, and this is where it just gets... I mean, this is like a real reality show here. This was at the time that Amber Heard was... Uh, I mean, was she really, but I guess she was, dating Elon Musk? Like, that's that's a thing that happened. And that word came down, she was going to be fired from this sequel, and that Musk sent a quote-unquote scorched earth letter to Warner Brothers and quote-unquote threatened to burn the house down if his girlfriend wasn't brought back for Aquaman 2. Fantastic stuff. Obviously, Heard is part of the film, though when you watch the only trailer that we've seen for the movie, even though it's coming out in like, I don't know, eight or nine weeks, Heard is in one second of that movie. And the other key part of the report is that there were scenes of her cut from the movie, which is a way, I guess, to get around it. Let's shoot, let's waste millions of dollars filming some really heavy green screen stuff and go through all the post-production work before Elon breaks up with her and then we can cut our ties with Amber, feature her as much as we absolutely have to, and then nothing more. The report, though, says that there are at least two scenes that featured Mira and they have been cut from the scene sequel and surprisingly they seem key or key-ish sort of scenes from the movie one apparently an action sequence where she's fighting black manta which you would think would have required a lot of money put into it and surely if they'd gotten too far down the post-production line it would have cost a lot of money to have produced that scene by that point so they wouldn't want to have wasted that necessarily and also you would think it would be a key moment in a key scene of the film but apparently not the other was that it was a love scene between her and momoa not necessarily key to the storyline, but you would think these particular character arcs, I mean, they spent most of the first film at each other's throats and seemingly hating each other. Since then, off screen, clearly had some chemistry going on. So to have potentially cut a scene that referenced all of that and lose that from the film is an interesting choice. But if they want as little Amber Heard in this movie as possible, maybe what we see of her in the trailer is all we're gonna get. We're not gonna find out until December. And with the writer strike now over and hopefully the sag after strike as well wrapping up in the next month or so we really hope that's going to happen we're going to see more pr done with these actors on the red carpet hopefully you're going to find out a few more tidbits of information and uh really spice up the promotional trail along the way or we could just get down to business and actually see these movies and tv shows am i right Speaking about TV shows, it is time to dive back into my journey through the Arrowverse and I've been covering every show as it was released, as it aired along the way. This particular week of the four that I'll be talking about, there was no Batwoman, which brings us down to three. Chronologically speaking, that now means we were blessed first up with Legends of Tomorrow. Episode 4 of Season 6, Bay of Squids, apparently about the legends shocked when Rory takes command and manages to find the location of an important alien, but he also lands them in the middle of the Cuban Missile Crisis. I mean, I feel like that all takes place in literally the first half of the pre credit sequence, but on that, an added element with the setup this week. Usually the story kicks off the necessary, this is the problem, this is when it happened, let's go fix it. Where here, they actually add in 
a little bit of an extra piece. Vladimir Putin was ousted as Russian president in 2044, which then opened up a previously top secret file about an alien encounter back in the 1960s. The whole timey-wimey nature of stuff, they're sort of in a place that exists outside of time, but something happened in the future, which then unlocks something in the past. They're immediately aware of it. They didn't need to do that, but I actually appreciate the, uh, well, even minimal effort that they went to to have a subtle difference. Speaking of differences, only last week I appreciate, no, I celebrated that the Legends used, I don't know, their time travel ship to travel to a point before the incident of the episode to stop it. It was amazing and it should be recognised, but in true Legends form, that is completely undone this week in the opening minutes. Okay, hold up. I thought this was a time machine. Why not bring us back an hour earlier? That way y'all can change out of your PJs. Oh, girl, you don't ask those questions. <laughs> Except that we should, especially because you actually did that the last episode. At least now, it kind of frees them up from ever having to answer that question ever again because they brought up the fact that they just don't want to. This episode also uh, actually puts more focus on the Nate-Zari relationship, or at least uh, for me. It, it made me look at their relationship in a different way to the point where I think I really thought about it for the first time in a long time. You know, I think I'd forgotten about the the awkwardness, the sadness, really, of Nate having to get around and, and work with, uh, essentially, his ex-girlfriend and to do his best to get closure on this relationship that, for all intents and purposes, never happened. Once that point in time came along where they changed the future, changed who Zari was and the fact that they never got together the same way, that never happened for her. Only he remembers it between the two of them. And he's just expected to be okay with that for the most part. Look, I know I give Legends a lot of shit. This is the best episode in a long time. I, I felt like along the way, multiple times, I thought they have cracked the code here on involving themselves in real world events. We're talking about something pretty key here in the Cuban Missile Crisis. But without being, I was going to say ridiculous. How about entirely ridiculous. They finally got how to do it. Be serious, but also be stupid in their own way and just have it work. That is until the White House storyline starts using the nuclear football as an actual football. You know, here I was, I was kind of liking Nate's naive and ever positive anecdote about the president's college and their football wins and, and, and how that related to what they were going through against the Russians and, and their involvement in the Cuban Missile Crisis as a whole. And it was just all a big build up to a gag that was shit. One step forward, one step back. Classic legends. Episode 7 of Superman and Lois, and, well, they were just asking for it, naming it Man of Steel. Clark struggles to help Jordan, who is grappling with a new power. Lois enlists Clark's help, which leads to a surprise encounter. Hopefully not with her husband. Hopefully she knows who that guy is. Look, the Lex Luthor story really deepens this week. He and Lois had a daughter. We get to see that. Superman had multiple assailants working with him in the destruction of Lex's world. And, and we really get a good taste of just how much damage a dark side Superman or, or super people could do and how quickly they could do it. We also get Clark and Lois aware of who this guy might be, talking about how the, the multiverse, and I mean, they've been involved in this in the past, might actually allow this guy to be Lex Luthor or, or more probable how he could be from this Earth, their Earth, but uh, the Luthor name 
make him related to Lex, or... Maybe a son we don't know about? Well, he said he worked for Luthor That can't just be a coincidence. Now, that's a fine question to ask, and I'm glad that they didn't immediately settle on a multiverse theory and just be absolutely married to it, but it's only a good question to ask until you realise what route the show ended up going down. Wally Parks, who plays Luther in this episode, in this show, is in his late 30s when this show was filmed. So for him to be a son, even if you, you know, take off five years, the actual Luther would surely be into his 60s. Now, Luther's never really been a physical rival for Superman, but I, I think I tend to prefer when they're of a similar age. Then you consider that in season three, or at least heading into it, the show cast Michael Cudlitz of The Walking Dead as actual Lex Luthor. It goes against the whole Wally Parks being a legitimate possibility of being a son of that guy. Come on. Of course, we the audience know that this Luther is of another world. But it's interesting that what Superman and Lois know of their Luther, even if the show, even if the audience does it, that their thoughts would even go down that path. Then again, the show had no idea who they were going to cast two years later to play him, so we will forgive them for that line of dialogue. But then you get to the end of the episode, Luther is not Luther at all. Not that he or, or the people from his world ever referred to him by that name. It was just the AI that did it in episode one that had our tongues wagging. We find out the suit, though, was merely programmed for Luther, and so it was all just kind of like an accident, and, oh, we've been duped into a secret that wasn't really a secret. So there wasn't even a chance that he was related. We can cross that right off. One thing I've really liked about what this show has done so far is the handling of the, the you know necessary-for-drama arguments along the way, but I think they've handled them in a really mature, more real-world sort of way, which makes them melodramatic timing of Jordan overhearing brother Jonathan talking to Sarah and getting jealous all the more disappointing. I, I get the end game. I, I get what they needed these two to talk about, the two brothers, but I just think I generally hate when TV shows or movies have this character only hear the most out-of-context moment in a conversation just to up the drama later. The show didn't linger on it, though, and, and the brothers' argument was less about what was actually said in that conversation and more so about Jordan listening in the first place. So it's not too bad. It's just the things that I've really enjoyed this thing, this show being and how it's unlike the rest of the Arrowverse shows in those ways. When it gets a taste of it in this episode, it does stick out for me, but they moved on pretty quickly. And then in the end, you know, we get some really, really kick-ass Superman scenes. Clark, he's in a car driving with Lois. He just looks two miles down the road to see what's coming up because he can. And then when he needs to run off into action as Superman, he swoops in, picks up a Jeep load of thugs, and drops the car off at the top of a cliff in the middle of the desert. Like, just, just great visual stuff. Superman stuff. Yes, The Flash. It's episode 11 of season 7. Family Matters part 2. I, I almost don't even want to read the synopsis because it's part 2 of what we saw last time, but here we go. Barry and Iris continue their endeavour to stop a dangerous force from destroying their home, Central City. I mean, I hadn't pre-read that. That's basically the synopsis for every Flash episode. First things first, though. What? The whole thing was a fake-out from last week. I said then, nothing about that episode of The Flash warranted it being part one of two, until the very end, which has now been undone immediately. No one died, I was a fake-out. Sorry we didn't have an extra 30 seconds to show you that. But even if I was put offside by that, it was completely overtaken by Iris and this awful line of dialogue. I don't get it. Why would Nora attack you? 
I think she sees me as competition. Look, I feel really bad for the actress, Candace Patton. She's been dealt with some really terrible lines to deliver this season. But this whole, the forces are children, we are a family push that they are trying to make happen in the show, just, it just isn't happening. And it all puts Iris, who really is one-dimensional about this entire thing, in a really bad spot for the audience because she's the one pushing it the hardest. And to be honest, for the most part, I had no idea what was going on in this episode. The, the amount of technical science talk trying to make up for a lack of coherence was off the chart. I just kind of tuned out about the how and the why of the forces and the lightning and what was causing it. And Because in the end, it doesn't really matter. It's about what happens when those two sides of the argument finally meet each other face to face and what they talk about. And being so far behind, I did read a lot about the show descending into horrible CGI in these final seasons. And and surely, God, I hope that this is the actual start of it. With Flash and his children all ending up in a, in a lightning hellscape that is the Speed Force with a not-so-fully-rendered Fuerza also popping up. I mean... I guess if you're going to have bad CGI, you just throw it all into the one scene and we forget about it quickly. The opposite of that, though, was another very real but very empty street where the good guys face off against the bad guy. The scene that we're all waiting for. It happens all the time in this show. It happened twice in this episode. But in this ep, those two scenes were on either side of another where the streets are full of people trying to escape what was happening outside. So in two scenes where you've got the key actors of the show and the key characters, no background extras, it's just the emptiness of a very, very busy city facing an apocalyptic threat. But then in one scene where you can do some second unit filming, you have a bunch of extras running around and a quick montage of people screaming and falling over. You can't have it both ways. And then, what? And then, what, the, the, the forces make up and move in together into a house in the land that time forgot? To, to what? Have the, have the show forget about them or, or wait until Barry needs some kind of super plot armor where they'll be brought back in off the bench to save the day? And, and Frost, too. She shows up at the end after, we, I mean, we, earlier in the episode, we hear about this prison break during the storm. We really didn't need the, the try-hard scene in the middle where she shows up and, and now she's free. All thanks to some off-screen heroics. Look, I said a few weeks back on the podcast, it was not going to be a long time until Frost was back in the mix and back for good. I didn't expect it to take long. Didn't expect that it was going to be this quick either. Did expect it to be a little bit longer that after episodes and episodes of Frost facing her past, arrested by the police and imprisoned, what, we're just going to move on and explain away to the audience that the reason why we've undone all that just happened to be some, oh, it's not really important enough to show on screen. But the scene where she has this um, fight in the middle is only for the purpose that she can admit that she has a crush. We we definitely needed that. We just didn't need the other stuff. Look, I've said this before. I, re- I Honestly, I really hate being as negative as what I've just been in the last couple of minutes talking about The Flash and only focusing on things that I didn't like about the episode. But I honestly found myself mid-watch multiple times thinking about what a decline this show has suffered. The Flash, yeah, it's definitely had its ups and downs, but like it, it was consistent at the very least. And to be honest, though, I, I should be happy. The storyline with Nora, it's you know being the big bad of the show, seems to have wrapped up. And we are about halfway through the season. There are eight episodes left, and, and this is what I've been asking for for years. Don't stretch out a season storyline 
over 22 episodes. If you are married to the idea of a season running that long, and this was, you know, network television, they wanted to run that long for advertising purposes and audience retention, all that sort of stuff. Break it up into two separate storylines. You do have a mid-season break. Why not have two seasons in one? Surely that's going to up the writing, up the storyline, because you're not having to stretch everything out. This season has done that so far. I will give it that credit. But it was also after four episodes of properly wrapping up last season. So we've actually had even less time where the Speed Force has been the big bad than we have had with any other in the show's run so far. And yet it still felt tedious. I would say, well, let's find out next week, but we don't. Next week is, according to the release schedule, it was only Superman and Lois. That's the only show I'm going to be talking about on next week's podcast. We might just have to fill out our time talking about some more spicy details on the set of Aquaman 2 in the lead-up to that movie's release, and uh, hopefully I'll have seen Blue Beetle by then. So enjoy your DC over the next seven days, and I'll catch you next week for more. It's all part of the plan. Get into geek.